I don't know about you, but uh, watching those five children dance, I need a nap. There's a lot of energy there, and, uh, and so we're looking forward to what happens this week at VBS and, uh, and how that message that God is good needs to be proclaimed over and over again. And sometimes we come to a place in life where we wonder if God really is good. We wonder if, if his goodness can, can handle what we're experiencing at that time. And, and, and we want to know, is that goodness, is God's goodness real or not? And it's something that becomes increasingly difficult for us today, especially in the, in the era in which we live. Many, if not all of us, have been notified at one time or another that we have been a victim of fraud. Raise your hands if you've been a victim of fraud. See what I'm talking about? A lot of folks here. It's, and, and fraud is simply a person who is not us, uses something that is ours to purchase something that we never received. It's frustrating, it's annoying, and it's aggravating. A few months ago, I received an email notice uh, while I was playing golf one day. I received an email notice that Heidi and Dawn, it was, con- it was from Verizon, and they were congratulating me on the recent upgrades that Heidi and Dawn had experienced with their phones. I found this rather interesting. I found it so interesting that I then proceeded to contact Verizon and congratulate them on the way that they were able to upgrade Heidi and Don's phone and yet keep the phone looking the exact same way. I was impressed. And so I informed Verizon of this great upgrade that my family had experienced. And then they proceeded to say, well, thank you very much. And they weren't catching on to my sarcasm as I was sharing this. And I said, may I ask when these phones were purchased and where they were purchased? And the Verizon person said to me, they said, well, just yesterday they were purchased in this town in Louisiana. And I said, that is amazing. So not only have you provided upgrades that look like they're old phones, But you've now mastered the art of cloning because my family was with me yesterday. And then the Verizon person made this observation. They said, sir, I think, (laughs) I'm sorry, I think you may be the victim of fraud. No, I couldn't believe it. I was stunned. Could not believe it. I was the victim of fraud. And so I began to explain to them, There's no way. There's no way. We weren't in Louisiana last week, yesterday, whenever the case may be. And the Verizon person proceeded to walk me through what I needed to do to make things right. In a word, it was aggravating. In a word, it was frustrating. In a word, it was angering, if that makes any sense. When you're the victim of fraud, you feel violated. You feel as if your freedom has been taken away from you. You feel as if you've been stifled, and everything that you were experiencing in life and what you had on tap for that day comes to a screeching halt. Fraud always harms people. And granted, this was a situation that got rectified and everything's fine. Unfortunately, Don and Heidi did not get upgraded phones. They still have the same phones that they've had for a while. But the point is this, is that, yes, I was annoyed with this, but 
it did not have eternal consequences in their lives. It got taken care of. It was rectified. It was fixed. But when fraud happens, especially in light of what we're going to talk about this morning, when fraud happens with the gospel, there are eternal consequences with that fraud. When fraud happens with the good news of Jesus Christ and God's grace, the eternal consequences are dire. And that's what Paul's addressing here as we continue on in this series in Galatians. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1 or, or scroll there on your Bible app on your phone. But in Galatians chapter 1, Paul now addresses, begins to address what's going on with the people, with the churches in Galatia. And he says this, starting in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But, if, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I, or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Father, we pray now as we look at this passage, we pray that your Holy Spirit would walk us through it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes so that we can see the real gospel, that you would open our ears that we can hear the real gospel, that you would open our minds so that we can understand what the real gospel is all about, and that you would open our hearts that we would be transformed by the powerful grace that comes through the real gospel. Lord, I pray that no one would hear anything that I say, but that they would only hear what it is that you want them to hear, that you need them to hear. And Lord Jesus, that you would be the one who receives all glory. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen. Before we hop into this section in Galatians 1, I need to address an issue that was brought up last week as we started our Galatians series. And I brought up this, this idea, not just an idea, but we were talking about what it means to be an apostle. And I laid out these three implications of what Paul was talking about when he said that he was an apostle called by Christ. And some of you are taking Rob's spiritual gifts class, and, and currently that's going on, and I think today you wrapped it up. Is that correct? So, and Rob taught it last year, and he does a great job. The curriculum is fantastic. I've told him he needs to probably sell it, you know, or, or, or get it out there so a broader audience can read it because it's very well put together. 
And Rob brought this up to me this week. He said, he said, if you could address this issue of what it means to be an apostle, because people have the gift of apostleship, and the way you made it sound last week is that it doesn't happen anymore, and, and I need to address that. And so, yes, there's no one that has seen today, no one has seen the risen Lord, and that's an essential concept, that essential quality that needed that needs to happen for anyone in the new testament to say that they're an apostle but there are still people with the gift of apostleship what do i mean by this i mean it's people that are called by god to plant churches it's people that are called by god to uh to begin christ following organizations to do something that hasn't been done before in essence to be given the gift of apostleship means that you're going into territory that hasn't been that has not been entered in the name of christ as long as we can tell and so some of you in this room could very well be have the gift of apostleship that god is spurring you on to take a step in, 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 in the adventure of getting the gospel out to places that it has never been before. And so I wanted to address that issue now because it, when you take Rob's class, you'll hear about this again and again and again. All right, so let's get back to this. Paul says this in verses six and seven, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul is experiencing real shock. Real shock. Such shock, such a genuinely real shock that he can't help himself but say, I am astonished. And how do we know he's in a state of shock? We know this. If you were to look at any of the other letters that Paul has written in the New Testament, you'll notice this. After he offers up this prayer time that he does in every one of his, every one of his letters, he then takes time to point to, to say thank you to God for this particular group of people. You will notice in the book of Galatians, there is not one phrase in here that says, God, I thank you for the Galatians. Not once. Unlike any other letter, unlike any other people group, not one time does he say, thank you for this people. And here's what's hard for us to, to grasp, is that Paul planted this church in Galatia. He was the one who took the gospel there. These people mean a great deal to him but not one word of thanksgiving for them. In essence, they're in trouble. And they know it because Paul doesn't say thank you. Growing up, I knew I was in trouble with my father. When I walked in the house, and there wasn't a word said about something that I had done. It might have been one of the speeding tickets that I got every year from 16 to 21. He didn't appreciate that very much. But my dad had this silence that was deafening. And he had a look that accompanied that silence that could melt steel. When he gave me that look and when he gave me that silence, I don't think he was saying, Jesus, thank you for my gifted son, John. It was not on his radar at all. And the Galatians are in the crosshairs with Paul. 
They're in the crosshairs in such a way that he's not happy. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in, notice this next phrase, in the grace of Christ. He's stunned that people are now saying this grace thing isn't really all that big of a deal. We now want to add to that grace. And we look back and we say, well, we would never do anything like that. Not us. But yet I would say to you that we have plenty of 21st century Pharisees all over the place. A good friend of mine who was in the ministry and, and he passed away a year ago, Paul Thompson, he said this, we were having a discussion, he, says, he said to me, he said, John, why is it that we claim that we're saved by grace and then we live like we're under the law? And I've never forgotten that phrase. We're saved by grace, and then we think that we need to do this, 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 and this. And this is an ongoing issue that the church has struggled with for a long, long time. I invite you to flip a few pages to the left and go to Matthew chapter 23 and listen to what Jesus says to the people there. Matthew 23, starting in verse 15, he says this, Woe to you! Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Wow. You travel over land and sea to get somebody to know who God is, to know this grace, and then after they convert to that, you then pile on them all types of other requirements that, are, that they need, that you say that they need to be truly godly people. I ask you this morning, are you a 21st century Pharisee? where you have taken God's grace and said, you know what, that just can't be all that there is. I need to add more to it. Because if you are, then you're in trouble. I'm just going to say that right now. And the thing that hit me as I was working on it this week, as I was working on the message this week, is this. The truth of God's grace seems to be almost too good to be true. It just does. It doesn't register with us that we can receive such amazing love, such unconditional love, that we can be rescued, and, and the rescue is all done. All the work is done. We don't have to do anything. It's already done. All we, all we do is we respond to it. We receive it and say, thank you, Jesus. I'm trusting in your grace to carry me through. We then think we have to add something else to it. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got to do this. And some of us are walking around as if we're burdened all the time, wondering if Christ cares for us, wondering if Christ's sacrifice is enough for us. I'm going off script here. But there are organizations that will knock on your door and present to you what they say is a gospel. They will then say, you need to do this. We have a subscription to this. Folks, that's not the gospel. And every time that I have interactions with those folks, I pray for them. 
I pray that they would experience real hope, real grace, real freedom. Because without that, they're in trouble. And a real simple definition of gospel is this, because he says this, I, I love the way he words this, he says, to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And then he says this, which is really no gospel at all. Why is it no gospel at all? It's because I'm going to give you a simple definition of what the gospel truly is. A simple definition of gospel would go like this, it is a message of good news that sets people free. That's gospel. That's the gospel. And for Paul, it's all about Jesus Christ and all that Jesus Christ did. That's the gospel. It's not Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that. It is simply what Jesus Christ has done. That's gospel. And that's what Paul says here. He says, these false teachers are coming in and telling you that they've got a different gospel, that it's really better than the one that you have right now. And he's saying, that's not gospel at all. It just isn't. And these false teachers, and I want you to notice this, Paul never once calls them out by name. He simply says these false teachers over and over and over again. He doesn't even honor them. He says that they, in essence, don't deserve any honor. Paul is really shocked at what these people have done. And he's really shocked that this church or these churches that he planted in this area are now turning away from the true gospel, the real gospel of Jesus Christ. And so then we come down to verse 8, and this tells us just how big of a crisis this is. We move from from this real shock, and then Paul says this is a real crisis. Verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. That is a crisis. And that's a real crisis. And so what hit me was this, was that so often in today's society, we're told that everything's a crisis. And so we're going to play a little bit of a game here, sort of help us, help us keep going here. But I call it the crisis game. And what I want you to do, in your mind, or you could even shout it out. Some of you are bold enough to do that. Margie Coe. Um, <laughs> by the way, it's great to see you this morning. So it's great having you here. I want you to assign a number as far as on the scale of 1 to 10, 10 being this is a crisis, 1 being this really isn't much of a crisis. Different situations up there. First one is this. Running out of gas on the 101 at rush hour. Where is that? Give it above a five, maybe a six in that area. We'll go with six. Is that okay? All right, so let's move to the next one. Do you have triple? If you have triple A, that's a great point. That crisis averted. Great point. I love you. So that's a great point. Great point. Okay, now we got the 911 operator on the phone for crying out loud. This is going astray. Okay so, okay, so there we go. All right. Thank you. So even if you have AAA, according to, according to Tracy, it's not that big of a deal. Anyway, so it could, it could very well. It's above a five. We would agree with that. 
Marcus, this next one is for you. Is this a crisis? The Oakland Raiders moving to Las Vegas. It's not, okay, you're a fan. Thank you, Marcus. So probably a one, okay? All right, here we go. Next one. Next one. Late night phone call from a family member. Could be a 10, right? That's a crisis. Here's one for you, Mark Rollins. Getting in the slow line at the grocery store. It could be pretty low, even though it's frustrating and aggravating. Okay, okay, yeah, I didn't add that, so there you go. Here you go, here's another one. A bad report from the doctor about some tests. Ten. Having more month left than money in the account. It's a big deal. It's a crisis. And then lastly, to sort of lighten it up a little bit, at least I hope, you can't figure out what to wear for the day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, there we go. Some of you are like, man, that's always a crisis. Here's my point in doing this little game. Today's problem about crises is this. When everything is treated as a crisis, real crises no longer get treated as such. When we live as if everything is at an 8, 9, or 10 level, no matter how small it is or, how, or no matter how not a big crisis it is or it is a big crisis, when we live at this level of 8, 9, or 10, real crises don't get the attention they deserve. And things that don't need all that much attention, we spend and pour an inordinate amount of energy and effort into resolving them. What Paul's talking about here is a real crisis. What I'm talking to you about this morning is a real crisis. When we are not pursuing a real gospel, it's a real crisis that has eternal consequences. Because what ends up happening is, is that this crisis continues to grow bigger and bigger and bigger, and people continue heading down a path of destruction that leads them nowhere. Fire ants are amazingly adaptable, fiercely aggressive, and multiply seemingly overnight. Worst of all, insecticide sprays generally can't destroy the mound's inhabitants. Like a mighty army, they've marched in impervious to brute force. Scientists, though, have now found a rather crafty way to wipe out entire colonies. Pellets of the ant's favorite food are tainted with a special tasteless, odorless poison and sprinkled around the mound. The worker ants immediately begin gathering up the tainted treasure and take it into the heart of the colony. Upon arriving there, they then unwittingly feed the poison pellets to the queen, slowly killing her. When the queen dies, no more workers are produced, and so in a couple of weeks, the entire colony starves to death. Food that looked so good caused their starvation. A gospel that is not the real gospel can look really good and it can lead to starvation. 
it can kill you. It can suck the life out of you. This is a real crisis. The Galatians will starve to death if they continue down this path of Jesus plus something else. We will starve to death if we continue down a path that says, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I need to add all of this other stuff to it. We'll starve to death. We will die. A quote from one of my favorite theologians by the name of John Stott, he says this, to tamper with the gospel is is trouble for the church. Indeed, the church's greatest troublemakers now as then are not those outside the church who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but those inside the church who try to change the gospel. Conversely, the only way to be a good church person is to be a good gospel person. The best way to serve the church is to believe and preach the gospel. The gospel. Jesus Christ and him alone, his sacrifice and him alone. This crisis that Paul is addressing is a crisis that we're experiencing today in our world where people are saying, well, this is the gospel truth that we can add this, 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 and this. And it looks all good on paper, but it's not what God's word has to say. And there are plenty of charlatans out there You can read about them almost on a weekly basis. What they're promising is not the gospel. It just isn't. And this gospel crisis, this real crisis that Paul's addressing is so big that it caused to, it it brought about the first council. And I invite you in your Bibles to flip back to Acts chapter 15. And listen to what happens here. We pick it up in verse 5 of Acts 15. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, brothers, You know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophet are written in agreement with this. As it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. And then these words in verse 19 are so 
pertinent for us today. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. In essence, we give them the gospel. We share with them the gospel, and he leads, and, and what he brings up next is he says, he says all these other things will happen because of that, but we give them the gospel. We give them the good news of Jesus Christ, and we remove anything that's going to be a barrier to that. And so Paul is addressing this issue, and, even, and, and how, how, how serious is he? He says this at the end of verse 8 and at the end of verse 9. He says, anyone who teaches a different gospel, let them experience God's curse. That is a place nobody wants to be. Eternal separation from God. When we are giving our lives to a false gospel, we are taking away God's grace. You see, this is a big deal. And it's part of the reason why I want you to know this. That I encourage you each and every Sunday or whenever you want to evaluate what I'm saying. Because the words that come out of my mouth, I am held accountable for as pastor. The teaching that I present, I'm held accountable for. And if it is not in agreement with what God's word says, I need you to let me know. And we can talk about this. I take this very seriously. Because the last thing that I want is to present to you a false gospel. Because lives are at stake. Eternity is at stake. So I ask you this question. What message, what message is your life preaching right now? Are people seeing a message of gospel truth? Or are they seeing a message of a whole lot of works in addition to gospel? But Paul's not done. We have this real shock. We have a real crisis. And then Paul talks about being a real genuine servant. Because perhaps the people were rising up and saying, listen, why should we pay any attention to you? You're just trying to make people happy. And Paul addresses that issue in verse 10. He says this, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. He's, he's addressing this issue of saying, hey, listen, if I'm trying to please people, I wouldn't be talking about this right now. And the deal is about pleasing people is this. It is always a moving target that leads to bondage. It's always a moving target. Those of you that know me know this. I enjoy people an awful lot. I really do. I, and, and, and it's just part of the way I am, but I enjoy being around people. I enjoy interacting with people. I love getting a, a, a word of encouragement, which is a great thing. But yet, if that's why I'm doing what I'm doing, it sets me up for a whole lot of heartache 
and a whole lot of exhaustion. All of us have interacted with people, not only in this room, but we've interacted with humanity. And there have been times when we've tried to seek the approval of people, and what ends up happening is every single time you think you finally got their approval, they shift focus, and you're left wanting more. It amazes me that Hollywood celebrities claim, well, I really don't want anybody to know my business, yet they Instagram every single thing that they do in life, seeking more and more approval. Seeking the approval of people is bondage. And to be very frank with you, it's something I struggle with on a daily basis because I love people so much. But God keeps hitting me again and again and again with this. John, if your love for people is greater than your love for me, we're in trouble. So he says, I'm here to please God. But I want to give this quick caveat, and I think Paul would agree with me. Christ followers are still called to please our neighbor. We're still called to be good people to those around us. Luke chapter 10, which is the story of the Good Samaritan, where this person comes up and says, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus gives this great story. And the good neighbor is somebody who cares for others. We're still called to do that very thing. And so he says, I want to be a servant of Christ. And it's, and it's in being that servant of Christ that I will present to you the message of Christ. And the message of Christ always moves people from bondage to, to freedom. In essence, Paul is saying to them, I want to move you from a place of bondage and set you free again. Just like I did a couple decades ago when I first presented to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to be free again. So perhaps you're here this morning wondering what this freedom looked like. What does this freedom look like? What are you talking about exactly when we're talking about the gospel, when you talk about the gospel? I want to give you an assignment. And you can take it or leave it. But I want you to take this home with you. And, I, and this is what I want to encourage you to do, to see if what I'm saying about gospel is true. First is this. Simply want you to pick one of the Gospels this week. Just pick one of them. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Pick one of them. Just pick one. Then I want to encourage you to read a chapter of that Gospel a day. Read a chapter a day. Okay, it'll take you about five to ten minutes. If it's Luke, it'll take you 20. But, boy, he's a wordy guy. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Read a chapter a day, and here's the question I want you to answer. What kind of freedom did people experience in that chapter when they encountered Jesus Christ? Did they experience freedom or not? And then I want you to answer one more question. How has Jesus freed you today? How has he freed you? It's one thing to think that this stuff happened thousands of years ago and forget that it's still happening today. Are you free today because of the gospel? And you should be. If you're not, then you don't have the gospel. 
anything that burdens you, anything that holds you back, anything that causes you to not experience, him, experience the freedom of Christ's forgiveness is not gospel. And there are plenty of imposters out there. The other day, Dawn and I were going, getting ready to go out on a date, and we got into my car. I, went, I inserted the key into the ignition, go to turn it, and nothing. And when I mean nothing, not even a click, not even a roar and die, nothing. It was dead silence. So Don says to me, he says, what's going on? I said, I don't know. All I know is the car's not starting. It started yesterday, not starting today. So going on a date with Don was far more important than having my car jumped. And so we went on our date, and while we're, at, while we're out on our date, and, and it was an extravagant date, spent it teriyaki madness. Um, so we're on this date, and we kept talking. We were having a great time with one another. And then Don just says, what are we going to do about the car? And I said, I, I, uh, good question. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm calling James Aguirre as soon as possible. That guy can fix anything. He's like a Greg Oni. It's amazing. So I get on the phone. I talk with James. James says, well, listen, I'm here at the church helping with set up all this uh, VBS stuff. Let's take a look. So we show up at the church. My car was parked here in the parking lot. And so James gets there and he says, you know, I don't have any of my tools. What tools do you have? <laughs> I laughed. Said, well, we could go to Ace and just do a gift card there, and that would have more more tools. So I said, let me go to my house. What do you need? And he told me what he needed, and I said, I think I have those. So I brought over the stuff he asked for. He says, well, it's going to be difficult to analyze what's going on what's going on because I don't have all my tools. I said, I realize that this is what we got. And so we checked the battery, we checked the starter, we checked the alternator. And nothing was working. And James says, I'll show up tomorrow with all my tools and we'll figure this out. So we part ways, show up the next day. James shows up with all his tools. A lot of tools. So, again, we check the battery, we check the starter, we check the alternator, we check all the fuses and the relays. When I say we, I mean James. <laughs> okay, I'm just standing there going, asking what I can do, you know, all this kind of stuff. And at the end of all these possible solutions, nothing was working. The car wasn't starting. And James is frustrated. I'm frustrated. I'm thinking worst case scenario that we're going to call a tow truck and we need to get a new car or something like that. James, the eternal optimist, knows that there's something that we can, that can get, get it fixed. And so he's still working on the fuses underneath the dashboard and I'm at the, I'm at the front of the car and all of a sudden, I was prompted. I kid you not. I was prompted, and I said, Lord, you know what the problem is with this car. You know what the problem is. Help us figure this out because this is frustrating. So James kept working, kept working, kept working, and then all of a sudden, I pulled out my phone, and I typed in, 2005 Ford Taurus won't start and just hit search. Does all the things, comes back with a response. And then all of a sudden I read a line and I told James, I said, I'll be right back. James says, where are you going? I said, I think I may have solved the problem. I take off, run to my house. I ask Dawn, 
for something. She gives me that thing. I go out to the car. James is still underneath the car. I said, James, let me try this. I take Don's key, put it in the ignition, and it starts right up. And I looked at James and I said, I fixed the problem. (laughs) It's done. Look at me. Started doing a happy dance. I was thrilled. Because I'm sitting there going, the great James Aguirre compared to the absolute knucklehead, John Bosick. James Aguirre, Greg Oney, and many of you in here, for crying out loud, can do far more. So for me, for this brief moment, I was gloating, saying I did it. The reality is I had nothing to do with it. What fixed it was this, was the right key started it up. Okay? Here's my point. And it's funny until I take it and do this. Many people right now are trying to use the wrong key to get free, to get movement. Many people right now are expending a lot of energy trying to fix their problems with a different kind of gospel, which is no gospel at all. And Jesus Christ is the right key that will start your life up and set you free. That's what he does. That's what he does. And trust me, if you have any mechanical issues, don't come talking to me. Go to James, go to Greg, go to someone else. But if you're having issues with being set free, get to Jesus. Get to the one who has the key to set you free. Father, we pray. We pray now as we contemplate gospel, the real gospel, and what that means. I would ask that your Holy Spirit would move in such a way that you would remove the barriers that we have presented in our lives, that we have erected in our lives, in such a way that prevent you from moving freely in our lives. That you would have mercy on us for the many times that we've added to your gospel thinking that that's okay. And that you would have mercy on us and forgive us for that. And for those times when we have required more of people than simply your grace moving in their lives and that freedom that comes through the real gospel, that you'd forgive us for burdening other people with stuff that, stuff that isn't necessary for salvation. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would move in such a way that we would be a people that is free. Forgive us for not being the free people that you desire us to be. And help us move in a way that draws people to you. We pray that that would happen. 
And we know that that can happen because you are the one who makes people free. So Lord, if there's anyone in this room right now that is not free, I would ask that you would awaken them to the reality of your gospel, your good news of salvation found in Jesus Christ and him alone. And that they would say yes to you by placing their trust in you. And for all of us in here, Lord, if there are any 21st century Pharisees, Lord, would you convict us in such a way by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would be set free and know your gospel and know that truth that sets us free. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for moving so freely. Thank you for being the one in whom we can place our, our, our undivided trust knowing that you will never let us down. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we're going to sing a couple more songs, and I know it's a little bit late, uh, but Jesus Christ has given us so much. How can we not respond to him? How can we not respond to him in song, and how can we not respond to him with grace, and how can we not respond to him with thankfulness and gratefulness? So I invite you to stand as we sing these couple more songs and sing them with great vigor and passion.